News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it has been a long time coming, but today we will get details about how to address sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces. This is all part of an independent review that has been extensively looking into this issue. And Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, will be there when this report is announced and she joins us now. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Simi. Now, give me an idea of what led up to this. Like, this has been a long time coming waiting for this review, hasn't it? It has. I mean, if you look all the way back, it's really been decades because we've been hearing about um, military sexual misconduct, of course, since that initial McLean's Magazine investigation back in the 1990s. In 2015, it reemerged. Operation Honor came out that was launched by General Jonathan Vance, former chief of the defense staff. He, of course, would end up being the first person of the high-level uh, brass in the Canadian Armed Forces to be accused of sexual misconduct in a new wave of reporting started last year, and that started with our report from Major Kelly Brennan and another woman who is anonymous, uh, who is still in the Canadian Armed Forces and concerned about being targeted. But both of these women came forward and made allegations to us uh, about General Jonathan Vance and sexual misconduct. So here you had the person who was running this being accused of it. He has since pled guilty to obstruction of justice uh, for lying to the police, tell, pardon me, telling Kelly Brennan uh, to lie to the police about the nature of their relationship. So this was really kind of a different iteration because it was talking about the brass. They were in many cases training, uh, and taking very seriously corporals or privates or young captains uh, who were doing things, making jokes, touching people inappropriately. But the allegations were that essentially the brass were getting off the hook, that they were unaccountable under the military justice system, uh, which is something that former Supreme another former Supreme Court justice, uh, Morris Fish, found in his report that anybody at three-star or above level of general or admiral could in fact not be tried before a military court for military sexual misconduct. The government committed they were going to look into this. They called in Louise Arbour. People were kind of doubtful about this, saying it's another Supreme Court justice. How many reports does it take? You know what the problem is. But she has taken a really fine-toothed comb to go through this over the process of many, many years. She has interviewed uh, brass. She has interviewed victims. She has interviewed stakeholders. She has interviewed experts. And today we'll find out exactly what's in that report. I'm told it's quite long and quite detailed. The government has actually had it for over a week, uh, figuring out their response to it. And of course, then the devil is the details because it will come down to how they actually manage to implement this. They say they're committed to everything in it, uh, but being committed to it and making it happen can be two very different things. That is so true. Uh, what is the difference with this particular defense minister? I know Anita Anand will be there for this announcement, but has she taken this on more so since she was put into this portfolio? So this is really the number one job um, that the Prime Minister gave her at Defence. And obviously, she's had her focus pretty intensely on the war in Ukraine, too. She has to. Uh, they didn't see that coming, and it, it's something that she's had to deal with. But sexual misconduct was the priority that was given to her when the cabinet shuffle happened and she was given her mandate letter. Um, and I know that it's something that, that she takes very seriously. The challenge is, number one, civilian oversight of the military, who really respond more to the prime minister than they do to the defense minister, uh, but also to changing an institution where this has been so deeply ingrained and at such high levels of the leadership and the message that that has sent down through the ranks. And there's no question that in a lot of the people who I talk to, the troops who are in the military, um, they are 
upset by this. They want an environment where they feel safe going to work. Even people it has not happened to say that they, they have witnessed it. Those who haven't witnessed it still, like everyone else, want to work in a workplace where this isn't a concern. So I think there's a lot of pressure for change internally and externally. One of the things that's different about this round of reporting is the politics of this for this Liberal government, because they have identified themselves as a feminist Liberal government, as one that cares about human rights. So when it came out that the previous Defence Minister, Harjit Sajjan was aware of allegations against General Vance uh, and that the government had heard murmurings about this and hadn't acted, that became very politically explosive for them. So there is a real motivation for this government politically to fix this situation, but it's a tough one to fix. I could imagine. Okay, and what has this done for morale within the Canadian forces? You mentioned that there is a desire to get things fixed, but having your top brass also implicated in all of this, it must be very demoralizing. I, I think it is. I think um, it's it's very hard for people in the military who I've spoken to. Some are, are in disbelief. They think it's just media headlines. Others say they saw it for so long that they were just used to it. Uh, and others say that they've, they've been disgusted with this for a long time, that they don't like the hypocrisy of generals and admirals who say one thing and do another and abuse power against subordinates, that it's not just about toxic sexual dynamics, it's about toxic power dynamics in the military. And obviously, power is important in the military. You're, you're ordering people to you have to be able to do that, uh, but to have leaders who don't who don't um, abuse that power. So the military has brought in a number of changes, including interviewing subordinates before people are promoted, looking really deeply in the background to figure out if there's allegations, because they had a number of folks where they tried to promote them, and then an allegation would come out, because now people were feeling more emboldened, they could step forward. I think there's also hope from people in the forces that this finally might be the moment to change, but they're kind of holding their breath to see what's happening. But some of the victims I've spoken to say they do see what they believe is a genuine desire in the people being appointed now to bring about long-term change, uh, and that it, they think sort of the, this newer, younger generation that is coming in, the people who are making through these background checks um, might be leaders who are able to implement more of this. All right. We look forward to hearing about it. Mercedes, thank you. Having me, Simi. It's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, talking about this big announcement that is coming this morning. It is with, you know, a number of ministers, including, of course, first and foremost, Defence Minister Anita Anand. And the issue is... How will the military and the government deal with sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces? Long time coming, as we said, and we'll have all those details for you. A lot to break down. You can check out Mercedes reporting as well uh, this evening uh, on Global National, the news hour, and check out globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk a little federal politics right now in the conservative leadership race. It's getting more and more interesting. Potential voters in that race are starting to think about who they're going to support, heading towards making that decision in September, or have they already decided and maybe they are now changing their mind because there's been a lot of coverage. You've heard more from the leadership candidates recently with a couple of debates, most notably the French language one too. So are things changing when it comes to the front runners of that race. Well, let's chat about this. Dale Smith is with us now, freelance journalist in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, who has also been musing about this. Dale, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. So let's talk about this. So what do you think is happening right now in the race? Are things changing? Well, this is the kind of turning point in terms of membership sales. This is the last week for which people can buy a membership in order to participate in the race. 
So there's a real push to get as many people signed up as possible uh, in order to get their votes. And after that, that's when things will start shifting in terms of trying to determine um, what kind of uh, votes they're going to get because it's a ranked ballot. So you're also going to be looking for second and third place choices as well. And what kind of an impact do you think the recent debates had? I think it showcased some of the talents or lack thereof in certain of the candidates. Um, I I think it's also demonstrated that uh, sometimes having a candidate who looks like he's good in a fight may not necessarily have the best ideas, and that's starting to hit home for some people. Okay, so do you mean Pierre Polyev? I mean Pierre Polyev. Okay, so what's happening there? Do you think his support is softening? Uh. I, I've seen some numbers uh, that seem to indicate that, but it's still early to say um, because, like I said, this is still at the part of the race where they're still signing up members. Um, and it's not quite time for people to start locking in their choices yet. But at the same time, I think he has started to expose some of his weaknesses uh, the more people see of him. Okay, and that's key, I think, in the debates, right? Because we saw him talking about some of his policy ideas that some people went, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Like the whole World Economic Forum situation, his stance on crypto. Do you think people are having second thoughts when they hear some of this? I I think it's quite possible that they are, uh, in particular because uh, he doesn't seem to have good answers when he's challenged on these things. Um, And particularly around crypto, I mean, they quoted his statements around saying he you know, to use it topped out of inflation, which is not a thing. Uh, But when he's confronted with that, he pivots and says, no, I didn't say that. I said, I want people to have the freedom to choose it, which isn't really what he was saying all along. So I think people are starting to get a sense of just how how deep his policy uh, brief really is. Right. Is it a problem, do you think, Dale, when somebody is an early frontrunner? Because he was clearly an early frontrunner. And then the question is, I guess, how do you keep that momentum? Yeah, I mean, it's always a question is whether you peak too early. And I think it's also the fact that people were drawn to him initially because of this kind of pugilistic sense that he kind of portrays around himself that, you know, he's going to be the guy who's going to fight Justin Trudeau and he's going to give him a black eye, metaphorically speaking, because um, he's not going to get in the boxing room with him after Senator Brazo did. Uh, but that starts to wear pretty thin the more that things get serious. Um, you know, inflation is running high right now. Housing prices are still increasing. And, he, you know, his solution has been, well, fire the co- governor of the Bank of Canada. Well, that's not going to actually do anything. Um, And I think people are starting to recognize that just being good in a fight isn't necessarily going to solve your problems. I also think when he said that, too, that did cause some people to go, wait, whoa, wait wait a minute. That's not like you shouldn't be doing that because you're politicizing that position now. Absolutely. I mean, the independence of the Bank of Canada is pretty hard fought. And there was a major scandal in the 1960s around that where uh, the governor at the time uh, ended up resigning in protest. So we've had, um, we've been through this battle before, and for someone to come along and start trying to politicize it again, I think, is leaving a a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Okay, this is interesting. And so if that happens, if people start to kind of rethink that frontrunner status for Pierre Polyev, who do you think benefits from that? Uh, It's hard to say at this point, because... um, 
the thing with a ranked ballot is it's easy for someone to come up the middle uh, and particularly someone who's fairly inoffensive uh, and unobtrusive. Uh, we saw that happen in Alberta uh, when Ed Selmak won the leadership. Uh, there were two very polarized camps who absolutely hated one another and everyone chose Ed Selmak as their second place because they didn't like the other uh, camp and he sailed through the middle. So it's possible something like that could happen here uh, when you've got kind of a, a charade versus Polyev camp. Okay, but then who is that middle person, do you think? Uh, still to be determined. Um, if the social conservatives can motivate their base enough, it could be Leslie Lewis. If uh, the moderates uh, can organize themselves, it might be Scott Aitchison. Oh, that is so interesting. So there's still a couple months to go, right here, Dale? Yeah. The, uh, I'm trying to remember when the uh, cutoff date for mail-in uh, votes is, but uh, the final determination is until the beginning of September. So there's still a couple of months left for people to start deciding how they want to rank those ballots. And the next couple months, I guess, is what they call that summer barbecue circuit. So they'll be out there probably coming to a local community near you. Every town fair and parade. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay, so that's coming up. Now, Scott, uh, Dale, I can't let you go without asking you about something. And I know from like following you on Twitter and all of this that you are a huge Star Wars fan. Yes, I am. Okay, what did you think of Obi-Wan Kenobi, the first two episodes? Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And the main plot was something I didn't see coming. So without making any spoilers, uh, I did not think that that was going to be the quest that was going to get Obi-Wan off of Tatooine. Okay, me neither. I was pleasantly surprised. How about you? Absolutely surprised. And I really loved being able to see the Inquisitors in live action. That was really, really well done. And now that I know you're as big of a fan as I am, I have a feeling we're going to be talking more often, Dale. So thank you very much for joining us. I look forward to it. Thank you. That's Dale Smith, freelance journalist in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, talking about the conservative leadership race. And the reason why things seem like they're changing a little bit is exactly what Dale just laid out for us there. A couple of recent debates that allowed the candidates to talk more in detail about their policy positions has made some... You know, conservative voters go, wait a minute, I'm not sure, That's I, I like what I'm hearing there. But this is that critical time when they start to make their decisions, and that ranked ballot could have such an impact on this race. It's going to be fascinating to watch over the next couple of months. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the big stories of the last few weeks, of course, has been what we're doing with the Royal BC Museum. It was Friday the 13th. What a date. I know that the government announced they're going to be demolishing and replacing the museum at a cost of well, more than $750 million and a timeline of eight years. It's brought a lot of questions up about why. Why is it so expensive? And really, what is the state of the museum that it requires such drastic repair So we wanted to talk a little bit about that today, if we can get an idea of what the state of the building is like. Joining us now is Angela Williams, who's the former Chief Operating Officer at the Royal BC Museum. Angela, thank you for being here. Thank you, Simi. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's talk about this museum. What do you think about the idea of building a brand new museum? Well, I'd really like to kind of take your listeners back a little bit to just understand a little bit of history. The museum itself was originally uh, built in 1886, 
not not in its current location and has been in different locations throughout um, its time. In 2003, the former Liberal government, uh, through core review, put the museum and the archives together and then set the museum on a path of renewal. It was one of the, the goals of the Liberal government that the museum look at its site, look at the issues that were associated with its buildings and in each subsequent service plan, the word renewal appears. So you'll see since 2003, which is now 19 years, that the museum has been looking at its site, looking at what the opportunities the site brings, but also what the issues are of all of the buildings. And then later on, you know, we did a seismic report, we did multiple seismic reports, we did engineering reports, air conditioning, functional assessments, all kinds of things that you would need to do to understand what was going on with the infrastructure. So the Liberal government of the day knew the infrastructure issues. The um, NDP government today knows the infrastructure issues. And they've taken a courageous and bold step to make a decision. They had to make a decision. The, the issues around the buildings are not just, you know, they're, they're 60 years old um, and they have uh, seismic problems, but the museum itself is also an educational institution. And in any given day during field trip season, there could be a, a elementary school's worth of children in that building. It's, it's my opinion that governments have a responsibility to manage the infrastructure that they own. And they have to take care of it. They have to um, rebuild it sometimes. This government made a decision to rebuild this particular facility. This government is making decisions on highways and transportation. I think just last week there was also an announcement of almost $2.5 billion towards transportation infrastructure in Vancouver. This isn't a, we have to rebuild the museum and then nothing else gets done. It's the museum needs attention, other things need attention, and the government is doing both. So it's not a, it's not a, 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 there, a then right. or that. Mm-hmm. Did you say the building is 60 years old? It was built in 1967, so almost 60. Right. Mm-hmm. So that seems not old enough to need an entire teardown and rebuild, though. Can it not be renewed in some way? Well, you know, if if people have the opportunity, there is an excellent business case. And, you know, I was one of the authors of the 2018 document, which which is the concept case, which outlines what the issues were of the building, which gives government an option of do nothing, which is always an option. Um, There's huge risk associated with that. There is the, um, you know, you could renew the, the property or you could completely rebuild. And if you look at the um, the numbers, which were designed through consultation, which were which were um, engineers, architects, professionals who really understand what um, building infrastructure is all about, they are giving you estimates, price estimates, and the government chose the estimate that didn't cost as much. So if you actually look at the business case, the uh, renovation would have been even higher. How is that possible, though? Like, we can build an entirely new building. It seems like other buildings get built for less money than that. What is it about a project like this, though, that makes it expensive, Angela? 
Well, there's a, there's a few things, I think, that, that listeners would need to know. I mean, most people just see the museum as a place to visit. They, they look at the exhibitions. They look at, you know, things that they, they see. And they think, oh, well, how hard can that be? Well, it's pretty intense work. Most museums, like when we were doing exhibitions, you're looking at a two-year time frame just to develop a temporary exhibition. The museum itself cannot be um, accessed properly. There are accessibility issues. People in the province um, don't see themselves reflected in the museum. I did a road trip around the museum, around the province, sorry, went to Prince George, uh, Kamloops, Kelowna, Richmond, Vancouver downtown, where I personally talked to citizens about what was important in the museum for them. And the thing that we heard over and over again is people do not see themselves reflected in the current museum. So the, the, all the exhibitions need to be um, renewed. There is an imperative for repatriation, and that's important. And when you start talking about all of those things, you realize that the exhibitions themselves are woefully out of date. They were built in the 60s and 70s. Um, some renewal has happened inside, but not enough. Right, but why, why is that then? Like, why is it taken all this time for even the exhibits to be renewed? Why wasn't this work being done in the 80s and the 90s? Well, you know what? The, the museum itself was designed originally to host maybe 100,000 people. I think I saw when I was reading the very early material, it said that the museum was designed for 100,000 people a year. The museum property itself... Um, if you look at the service plans again, the annual reports, it's around a million people, 750 to a million people, it depends on the year. So the pressure on the building itself, where the um, sewage system is, is under sea level, so for example, sewage has to be pumped up to seat up to the road in Victoria, you cannot um, bring big trucks down into the loading bay. Because so when, when we have these big exhibitions, the staff are emptying the um, trucks from the street into the museum. There's a whole bunch of small things that add up to a whole bunch of large things. Right. It would be like, it would be like if, if you decided you were going to rebuild your home on your existing site, but you're going to take out a corner at a time. It's impossible. Do you understand, though, Angela, where people are coming from with their concerns about the project? I absolutely do. And, you know, I'm one of the people that's facing not having a doctor in the, in the province. I have, uh, I'm a taxpayer, just like everybody else. I worked for the Ministry of Finance for a long time where, where we were taught to think like a taxpayer. But what, the message that I'm trying to give people is that this is your museum. You will have the opportunity to talk to museum professionals about what you would like to see in your new museum. The museum is sending traveling exhibitions throughout the province. Go see them. Go, go support your own heritage sites in your community because they're also important. But the real message that I want to leave your listeners is that government has a responsibility to provide safe infrastructure for its citizens. And you can't predict when a, a disaster is going to happen, much like happened in November um, in the Coquihalla, <clears throat> and government has to repair that damage. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't want to be waiting for uh, an earthquake that will damage that building beyond repair. Or, 
even worse, uh, kill or injure people in that building. Because it's the, if you read the seismic reports, and I encourage everybody to go and do that because the comprehensiveness of all of the reports that are online, mm-hmm. for everybody to read, you know, you, you'll get a better sense of what really the problems are. All right. Well, Angela, thank you very much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you, Simi. I appreciate the opportunity. That's Angela Williams, former Chief Operating Officer at the Royal BC Museum, talking about the case for what is happening, about building a new one at the cost of, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars. And I know you've got thoughts on that. Now that you've heard what Angela had to say, too, absolutely weigh in. Simi at cknw.com.